Our scripture reading this morning is from Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 22 through 28. That can be found in the Pew Bibles on page 724. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Would you join with me in prayer? Father, surely a great many of us arrive today with a great many distractions. I pray that you would give us grace to put those aside so that we may receive and submit to, be convicted by and encouraged and built up by the word of Christ. Give us ears to hear, O God. Please attend the preaching of the word by your powerful spirit so that our souls may have eternal good done for them. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This past Thanksgiving Day found Sarah and our children and me landing at the Atlanta airport. And we herded the children from the gate onto the plane train, then to baggage claim where we claimed our four suitcases and two enormous car seat bags. Sarah pushed Abraham in a stroller accompanied by John Mitchell, and Georgia pulled one small suitcase, Bethany pushed another, and I pulled a suitcase and pushed a suitcase and wore one of those car seat bags on my back and another around my neck. (laughs) And in that configuration, we managed to get from baggage claim to the building outside where we then got on the SkyTrain that eventually delivered us to the rental car center. Because several weeks before this, knowing this trip was coming, I had reserved a rental car big enough for all six of us and our luggage, and like a, like a man in a desert crawling toward an oasis, <laughs> we finally arrived at the Alamo rental car counter where we were told they didn't have our reservation <laughs> or any other cars. I felt like I'd stepped into the Seinfeld episode where Jerry makes a reservation for a car and was told there was no car, and the lady at the counter tells him, 
I know why we have reservations. And he says, I don't think you do. <laughs> you know how to take the reservation. You just don't know how to hold the reservation. And that's really the most important of the reservation, the holding. <laughs> Alamo told us, and they sent emails reminding us and confirming that they would have this certain car for us on a certain day and time. And they didn't keep their word. They left Sarah and our four children and me without a car. No other company had walk-up cars for customers on Thanksgiving Day. Three and a half hours from my family in South Georgia on Thanksgiving. Now, in about 50 years, my family and I will laugh about Alamo. <laughs> not keeping their word to us. But I know that there are ways that people haven't kept their word to you that you'll never be able to laugh about. Some of you have wounds from broken promises that will never heal. The list of things that hurt worse and wound more deeply than a broken promise is a very short list, isn't it? But we're going to see from the scriptures today one who always keeps his promises. Indeed, all of the promises that we're going to see today are in service of one big promise. And the reason we're talking about promises today is because we're talking about covenants specifically biblical covenants. And you can't understand the covenants God makes in the scriptures without understanding them in the context of promise. Now, why are we talking about biblical covenants here at the end of the first big section of the book of Genesis, chapters 1 through 11? Well, it's because we've already seen two covenants. The covenant with Adam, chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. The covenant with Noah, chapters 6 through 9 of Genesis. And when we resume our walk through Genesis after the new year, we're going to run right away into the next of the Bible's big covenants. That's God's covenant with Abraham. And so since in our preaching in Genesis up till now, we've been using the word covenant a lot. And since we're going to keep using it, I think we'd do well to linger for a bit today on what the Bible means when it talks about covenant and what it means when God makes a covenant in the scriptures. Now, I've given you a sermon outline in your bulletin that I hope will be helpful to you as we go along today. And the best place to start, I think, in considering what it means when God makes a covenant in the scriptures is to define covenant. So in your outline, and if you don't have a bulletin handy, you can find the outline at cmcvermont.org gather. In the outline, I've given you the definition by a man named Gordon Hugenberger, but I want to direct your attention to O. Palmer Robertson's definition, both because I think it's very good and because it's easy to memorize. You can memorize this and know, okay, when the Bible talks about a covenant, this is what it's saying. Robertson defines a biblical covenant as a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. I want to quickly break down the parts of Robertson's definition. A covenant is first a bond. That means it's an obligation 
bound by an oath. Sometimes you hear the word contract used to describe a covenant, but the word contract is woefully inadequate for what we're talking about here. A covenant is much more than what we think of when we use the word contract. A covenant is a promise that must never be broken. A covenant is a promise made by one, in our sermon today, God, who willingly obligates himself to the one to whom he makes this oath. A covenant is a bond. It's an obligation bound by oath. And not only that, it's a bond, Robertson rightly says, in blood. That means we're talking life and death here. The penalty for breaking the covenants that we're going to see today is bloody death. We're going to see that in a few weeks when we get to Genesis 15 and the ceremony when God cuts his covenant with Abraham. We see it most vividly, of course, in the cutting of the new covenant with Christ's blood on the cross. It's a bond in blood and it's sovereignly administered. That is, the covenants that we're going to talk about today are administered by the all-sovereign one, the Lord God Almighty. And what it means for covenants to be sovereignly administered is that God doesn't sit down across a negotiating table from the one with whom he's going to make covenant and discuss terms and push folded pieces of paper back and forth. No. When God establishes a covenant, he says what he's going to do, And he says what the party with whom he's entering covenant must do. And then God outlines the blessing for keeping covenant and the curses for failing to keep covenant. Commit this definition to memory. It's a very helpful one. A covenant in the scriptures is a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. Well, what constitutes a covenant? What are the elements we see in Scripture when a covenant is being made? Again, I think we've already seen one with Adam. It's reestablished with Noah. We're about to see another with Abraham. Some of the five elements that I've given you in your outline are implied in the covenants that we're going to see. Other elements are explicit. But generally speaking, the Bible's big covenants all have these constituent parts. And the first is there's a promise. I keep using that word promise because it's essential to the covenant discussion as over against the word contract, especially in our culture where contracts seem to always have escape clauses. Contracts are written with a presumption that one party or the other or both are going to break the contract or try to get out of it. But not so with the promises that are made in the Bible in the context of covenant, especially when it's the Lord God Almighty who's making the promise. God keeps his promises. He remembers his covenants. Great, as we've just sung, great is his faithfulness. And so a covenant always contains a promise. A covenant also always contains two parties. 
in the covenants that we're considering, God is one of the parties, and a person or a group of people is the other party, always two parties. And then there's the intention to initiate, to start, to cut, the Bible will say sometimes, a covenant, or to uphold, to establish a covenant. Sometimes this, this, this intention is explicit, other times it's implied, but a covenant always contains an intention to initiate, to cut a covenant, or to uphold or establish an already initiated covenant. Another constituent element of a covenant is a formal binding of the relationship between the two parties. For example, in the covenant we're going to see in just a moment that God makes with David, by the time that God makes a covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, if you know the Bible's account of King David's life, we've already seen interactions between David and God. But when God enters into covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, there's a formalizing, there's a solemnizing of the relationship between God and David that takes place. Sometimes this binding of the relationship is connected with a sign like we saw when Pastor Eric preached, the sign of the rainbow that formalized, that solemnized God's covenant with Noah. Another well-known sign that formalizes and solemnizes a covenant is the cup of the Lord's Supper that signifies the blood that Jesus would pour out on the cross, which he says to us is a sign of the new covenant. So when you're talking about what, make, what makes up a covenant, what constitutes a covenant, you see God and another party entering into covenant. It's not the beginning of the relationship between God and that party. It's the binding. It's the formalizing. It's the solemnizing of that relationship. That's the pattern we see from the scriptures. And then there are elements of blessing and cursing. Sometimes these elements are explicit. They're detailed. We find that, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, in the context of the Old Covenant, the covenant that God makes with Moses. In Deuteronomy 28, the Lord details how He will bless Israel if they keep the covenant He makes with them through Moses, and how He will curse them if they break covenant with Him. Other times, the blessing or the curse might be implied. In the covenant with Adam, for example, the curse is explicit. God says to Adam, the day in which you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. But the blessing is implied. If Adam will be faithful to God, Adam's going to continue to live and not die. So these covenants have an element of blessing for keeping covenant, being faithful. They have an element of cursing for failing to keep covenant. Now, what are the Bible's big covenants? There are six of them that I want to draw your attention to, and I've listed them for you in your bulletin. First, there's the covenant with Adam. Some call it the creation covenant. Some who see a covenant in Genesis 1 and 2 call it a covenant of works. There are disputes among faithful believers about whether God even had a covenant with Adam, but as you see from the outline, I do conclude that God made a covenant with Adam, and I conclude that for two big reasons. First, 
Hosea chapter 6 and verse 7 says of Israel, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. I think the logic of Hosea 6, 7 makes it hard for God to say Israel transgressed their covenant with God like Adam did if Adam hadn't been in covenant relationship with God. Second reason I think there's a covenant with Adam, and in my mind most compellingly, is I don't think the point that Paul's making in Romans 5 stands up if Adam wasn't in covenant relationship with God. Maybe you'll remember in Romans chapter 5, Paul is comparing how those over whom Adam was federal head were cursed because of Adam's sin. And he's comparing that with how those over whom Christ is federal head are blessed because of Christ's perfect obedience, including his death on the cross. In fact, let me demonstrate what Paul is saying to you. Open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 5. That's in the New Testament, the second big part of the Bible, and it's the fifth book. So the New Testament starts with, it's the sixth book, rather, starts with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then Acts, and then Romans. We turn to Romans chapter 5. We won't read the whole of Romans 5, 12 through 21, but look with me at verse 12 of Romans chapter 5. The apostle writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, that's a reference to Adam's disobedience to God in the garden, eating the forbidden forbidden fruit, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. God is showing us that Adam, the term is, was federal head over all who descended from him, which is all of us. Adam's the first person. Adam and Eve are the first people. Every one of us come from Adam and Eve. And so when Adam sinned, he as our federal head cursed all of us with his sin. Death spread to all men because all sinned. But then look down at verse uh, 15. The free gift, that's salvation, is not like the trespass. It's not like Adam's sin. For if many died through one man's trespass, through Adam's sin, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Skip down to verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, again, Adam's sin, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned, death came to all of us through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, Paul's landing the plane for this particular part of his argument. Therefore, as a result of all I've just said, he's saying, As one trespass, Adam's sin in the garden, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, Christ's obedience on the cross, leads to justification in life 
for all men. What's Paul saying here? Well, to say that someone is your federal head is to say that what they do affects you for either good or bad. The Bible teaches that Adam is the federal head for all of humanity because all of humanity descended from Adam. So when Adam sinned against God in the Garden of Eden and was cursed, we all were stained with Adam's sin. We all became guilty and we all fell under the same deathly curse as Adam. But Jesus... The second Adam, Paul teaches us in Romans 5, is the federal head of all who are in him by repentance and faith in him. And so the perfect obedience that Jesus offered to God, including his willingly dying on the cross, that perfect obedience has earned Jesus eternal blessings. The blessings that come to those who keep covenant with God who are covenantally faithful to God. And then we who are in Christ by faith, we now enjoy these same blessings as though it was us who offered to God perfect obedience. Do you see that relationship? We were in Adam, and so his sin cursed us. When by faith we're placed in Christ, his obedience blesses us. Adam and Christ being federal heads over groups of people. That's all covenantal language. God made a covenant with Adam. Adam broke it. And he caused himself and all who Adam represents to experience that same cursing. And likewise, God made a covenant with his son, Jesus. And Jesus kept it. And he caused himself and all who are in Jesus to experience that same blessing. I'm giving you evidence for why I understand there to be a covenant with Adam. There's no disputing whether Noah was in covenant relationship with God. God explicitly says in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 18 to Noah, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And at the end of Genesis chapter 7 and going into chapter 8, We read, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. I said to you when I preached that passage a few weeks back that when the Bible says God remembers what's being communicated is God being faithful to a covenant promise he's made. Not that he's recalling something that slipped his mind. And then in chapter 9, after Noah and his family come off the ark, the Lord gives to Noah the same word that he gave to Adam in Genesis 1. He tells Noah, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And so we see that the covenant with Noah is an upholding of the covenant that God established with Adam. But this covenant gets developed from Adam to Noah because now that sin has entered into the world, a burnt offering of animals and and birds, a a blood substitutionary sacrifice is necessary if God's going to put aside his wrath, if he's going to hang his war bow in the clouds and graciously promise never to destroy the world with a flood again. 
Another indisputable covenant relationship is the one, as I've mentioned, that God enters into with Abraham. We're going to look at this up close after the new year. But God promises Abraham in this covenant the Lord makes with him. He promises him land and many seed, offspring. He promises Abraham blessedness, the fulfillment of which is going to undo the curses inflicted on humanity because of Adam's covenant unfaithfulness in Genesis 3. When we get to Exodus, we begin to see the covenant that God makes through Moses with the Israelites, who are the descendants of Abraham. It's a covenant with a lot of explicit stipulations, what we've come to call the law of Moses. And as I've said to you in Deuteronomy chapter 28, God holds forth blessings for keeping this covenant and curses for breaking it. But this covenant also holds out hope, a hope that would be realized in the new covenant. I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And if you didn't bring a Bible today and you're using one of the pew Bibles in the racks there where you're sitting, if you don't have a Bible of your own, take that pew Bible home with you as our gift to you. It would be our joy to give you that Bible. Fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 30. Notice what Moses says. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I've set before you, in chapters 28 and 29, those blessings and curses are outlined. And you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If you were listening closely to what Alec read earlier to us from Ezekiel chapter 36, you're going to hear similar language here. Verse 4 of Deuteronomy 30. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. From there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. He's going to cut off the sin around your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Don't get the mistaken impression that old covenant is synonymous with bad. What a foolish thing to think. The Apostle Paul says to the Romans that the law is holy and righteous and good. It has come from God. And it holds out, even in its language, the hope that's going to be fulfilled in the new covenant. Well, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see God make a covenant with David. During the period of redemptive history, when the old covenant, the covenant with Moses was still active, God makes a covenant with David. This covenant is a partial fulfillment of the covenant 
that God makes with Abraham because David descends from Abraham. And the promises that the Lord makes to David in 2 Samuel 7 are many of them restatements of the promises that God makes to Abraham. But this covenant with David moves the story of God's salvation of his people forward by revealing that God's going to cause one to come from David who would be both the son of David and the son of God and who will rule his people as king forever and ever. That's what God promises in his covenant with David. And then the last, the final covenant in the scriptures is the covenant God makes with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who mediates the blessings of this covenant to his people, the ones for whom he died. This covenant is what the prophets call the new covenant. In your bulletin outline, I've given you just a few of the places in Scripture where the prophets speak of this covenant, but let's turn to Jeremiah 31, where the new covenant gets its name. Jeremiah, if you get to the book of Isaiah, which is roughly in the middle of your Bible, and you just turn right one book, you'll get to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31. (laughs) Jeremiah chapter 31. And look with me beginning at verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, there it is, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant, this is a reference to the old covenant, the covenant with Moses, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And what's this new covenant going to be? I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Do you see what God is promising, brothers and sisters? He's promising a new covenant, not like the old covenant, the covenant with Moses that Israel broke. Under that covenant, Israel broke God's law at every turn and were unfaithful to him like an unfaithful bride. But Jeremiah holds out this hope and this promise. Those whom God causes to be partakers in the new covenant, he puts their law within them. He writes his law on their hearts, which means he causes the partakers of the new covenant to keep that covenant. He promises to be their God and they his people. You say, well, I mean, isn't he... Isn't he God? What does it mean that he's promising to be God? It means that he's promising to love you. It means that he's promising to have fellowship with you. And he's promising that knowing the Lord and being known by him won't belong only to a certain few in the new covenant. No, all those in the new covenant will know him. 
And all those in the new covenant will have their iniquities forgiven and their sins not remembered. Isn't it marvelous what God doesn't remember? He remembers his covenant. And as a result, he doesn't remember his people's sins. Jeremiah doesn't give us an exhaustive list of the new covenant's blessings. Let's look a little more at uh, these blessings by going to the prophet Ezekiel. So if you're in Jeremiah, pass over the next book, the book of Lamentations, and go to the following book, the book of Ezekiel, and go to chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37, we're going to pick up the reading at verse 24. What is it that God's promising in the new covenant? Ezekiel 37, beginning at verse 24. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They And their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Ezekiel's talking about the new covenant. It's prophesied by Jeremiah, as we saw. And he's telling us that the new covenant, in the new covenant, God's people are going to be ruled by the one who descends from David. We saw that in the covenant with David. By the time Ezekiel writes, David is dead. So what's God saying here? God isn't saying that David's going to be resurrected and reinstalled as king, but that one from David, again in fulfillment of God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, one from David is going to rule God's people as king, but not only as king, as shepherd. He'll tenderly guide and care for his people. The new covenant, Ezekiel says, is a covenant of peace. That's what Isaiah 54 says as well. Those in this covenant are no longer enemies of God. Those in this covenant have peace with God. They have peace from their enemies. They have peace with all who are in this covenant. It's a covenant of peace. They're given land. The whole creation, as it eventually turns out. And best of all, the new covenant promises that God himself God himself will dwell with his people. He says his dwelling place is going to be with them. His sanctuary, his habitation is going to be in their midst. Can you see, brothers and sisters, the magnificence of these promises? Can you begin to appreciate the indescribably wonderful news that these promises herald. Now, there's so much that could be said about each of these covenants, but I just wanted to give you a thumbnail sketch of each one so that you begin to know what it is we're talking about 
when we talk about covenants in our preaching. But what is it that God does with covenants in the Bible? What role do they play? Well, I want you to appreciate that covenants aren't the story of the Bible, but they're the framework that God's story is hung on. The Bible's story is God receiving glory by saving sinners through the death and resurrection of His Son. That's the Bible's story. Covenants are the framework for that story. They develop that story and move it along. Maybe another way of putting it is these biblical covenants advance the story of how God keeps the big promise that he made to Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. You're all, well, maybe almost all, very familiar with Genesis 3.15, but those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. So why don't we go to Genesis chapter 3. That's the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and then the third chapter. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This promise comes in the context of the Lord's cursing of the serpent, who was empowered by Satan. Satan, who tempted Adam and Eve to sin against God. And Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, this is God speaking, between your offspring or seed and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The one God is referring to as the offspring or seed of the woman is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the bruising of the serpent's head that God refers to is Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. And I'm telling you that the covenants advance us down the road of God making good on that salvation promise. They're the framework on which the story of God making good on that promise is hung. Which is another way of saying that each of the big covenants in the Bible that we've seen is used by God to move us along toward his son. To show us who his son would be, what he would be like, what he would do. The covenants with Adam and Noah show us that the Lord Jesus would be given the charge to exercise dominion over all creation as God's son. That he would offer obedience and covenant faithfulness to God that would be accounted to all over whom Jesus is the covenant head. The covenants with Adam and Noah show that if God is to deal graciously with sinful humanity, it's going to be because a bloody substitutionary sacrifice is offered. The covenant with Abraham shows us that the Lord Jesus is going to be a descendant of Abraham, that he would receive land, all of creation, in fact, and that he would be the father of a great multitude. Doesn't the Bible say that Jesus is the head of the church, a number no man can number? And that Jesus would be a great blessing to all the nations, that he would receive great blessings, which indeed has happened as he's been highly exalted and seated at God's right hand. And all of those covenant blessings come to all who are in Christ. The covenant with Moses moves us along to Jesus because it gets us ready for the one who would keep God's law perfectly and completely. It gets us ready for the only one who would render total obedience to God as God has always required from those who would have fellowship with him. 
The covenant with Moses also gets us to Christ because he fulfills all of the covenant stipulations pertaining to sacrifice when he's offered on the cross for the sins of God's people. The covenant with David is fulfilled in Christ because Jesus descends from David and rules eternally as both king and shepherd of God's people. He rules as a king of peace. He builds a house for God, the church. And of course, the new covenant is where it all resolves. That covenant is made with Christ. And just like the old covenant, it's ratified in blood. Perhaps you remember from Exodus that Moses brought Israel into the old covenant by sprinkling them with blood. That's how it was ratified. The new covenant is ratified by blood too. It's the blood that Jesus poured out on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, for the cleansing of those who have faith in him. That's why when Jesus was instituting the Lord's Supper the night before he was crucified, he held up the cup and said that it signified the blood that he would pour out on the cross. He said, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. A covenant is a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. And the new covenant, which brings all of these marvelous blessings to those whom God brings into it by faith in Christ, was ratified by Christ's blood on the cross. Now, how do we begin to make application of what we've been seeing today from the scriptures about the covenants? As I put it in your bulletin, so what? Well, first, brothers and sisters, I want you to glory in the Christ who suffers as a covenant breaker. I want you to glory in the Christ who suffers as a covenant breaker. I've said to you that Jesus alone kept covenant with God. Jesus was born under the law, Galatians 4, 4 says. He was born under the old covenant. And Jesus alone kept God's law perfectly, both in deed and in attitude. To Jesus alone, alone belong all the blessings of obedience detailed in the old covenant in places like Deuteronomy 28. Jesus deserved none of the curses that belong to those who would fail to keep covenant with God. But so that you and I could be brought in Christ into the new covenant, brothers and sisters, so that you and I could begin to experience new covenant blessings like having new hearts and having our sins forgiven and having peace with God forever and having God dwell with us so that we could experience those blessings. Christ had to shed the only blood that could inaugurate the new covenant. Though he perfectly kept covenant with God, Jesus willingly suffered the curses of those who had been unfaithful to God. Jesus willingly suffered having God's wrath poured out on him. The wrath that was due to those who were sinfully disobedient and, and proud and stubborn and grumbling and rebellious against God. Jesus suffered being estranged 
from God as a man on the cross being exiled from God's presence. Not enjoying having God dwell in his midst. On the cross, Jesus willingly suffered as an enemy of God. Not as one with whom God had made peace. Jesus willingly did that for you and for me, my brother and sister. You and I, who have sinned more times than we could count in both deed and attitude. You and I, who've rebelled against him and slandered him and disobeyed him and have been ashamed of him. But because of Christ, we don't get the curses that we deserve. We get the blessings that Christ deserves because of his perfect covenant faithfulness and obedience. Hallelujah! Because of Jesus' work and because of his work alone, we now have peace with God and fellowship with him and the forgiveness of our iniquities and our sins remembered against us no more. We now enjoy dwelling with God by his spirit and we live with the hope that in resurrection bodies we're going to dwell with God in Christ face to face eternally in a new creation. We know God and he knows us. He is now our king and shepherd and we are his people. We are his beloved children because the curses that we deserve were accounted to Christ and the blessings that Christ alone deserves were accounted to us through him. That's good news. So when we're asking, so what about the covenants? One so what is that your Savior suffered your curse in your place so that you could graciously receive eternal blessings. So let's offer him thanks and praise for that. Let's meditate on that. Let's let it make our hearts happy in the Lord. Let's glory in the Christ who suffers for his people as a covenant breaker so that we could receive the blessings of one who has been faithful to the covenant. But another so what, another way to apply these truths is glorying in the God who keeps his saving promises. Glory in the God who keeps his saving promises. I talked earlier about how painful it is for someone not to keep their promise to you. And we are notorious promise breakers. It's why we have to pile on a bunch of junk when we want people to actually believe us. No, I swear. Pinky promise. Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. But not our God, brothers and sisters. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? The fact that God keeps his promises is very good news, brothers and sisters. It's because his promises are good. Who cares how good God is at keeping promises if his promises are about things that don't matter? 
or if they're about things that would bring us harm. But his promises are good. His promises are to save his people from our sins through his son's death and resurrection for us. His promise is to give us new hearts. His promise is to free us from being slaves to sin. His promise is to give us the hope of one day never sinning again forever. His promises are to dwell in our midst bodily in the person of his son and to give us a perfect creation to inhabit and to rule under and with his son. And he will keep that promise because he's already begun to keep that promise in sending his son and in crushing him on the cross in your place and in raising him from the dead for your salvation and in already having begun to save you from your sins. Glory in the God who keeps his saving promises. I just tell you, I have personal experience. That works. Friday morning, I came to men's prayer. I was limping spiritually. But in preparation for this message, we spent time in Ezekiel 37, the passage we read earlier. And we just took some time listing the new covenant blessings that that passage holds forth. And then we spent time offering prayers of praise and thanksgiving to God. And as I prayed with my brothers and thanked God for these things, and as I meditated on these blessings, I can't tell you how tremendously I was encouraged. It it pushed my discouragement to the edge so that it wasn't front and center and dominating my view. Brothers and sisters, I call on you. Glory in the God who keeps his saving promises. Think on what these promises are and what they mean for you. They're good medicine for your soul, no matter what ails you. But I must say to those of you who are outside of Christ... Please listen to me. If your life ended right now, you would not receive the blessings of Christ's covenant faithfulness to God. They have not been accounted to you because you don't belong to God. Because you are not trusting in his son Jesus to save you to forgive your sins, to cleanse you, to transform you, to bring you to God. You who are outside of Christ, because you're a sinner and because of your sinfulness, you have not kept covenant with God. You are a covenant breaker. And if you never repent from your sin, and place your confidence in Christ alone to reconcile you to God. It's my burden to tell you that you will suffer eternally the curses that justly belong to covenant breakers. You will dwell forever, not in God's presence, but away from his presence, the Bible says, in a place that the Lord Jesus himself described as a place of outer darkness. 
a place of a fire that never consumes what it burns. A place of eternal weeping. A place of eternal gnashing of teeth because it's a place of unending pain and misery and regret. My dear unbelieving friend, that is what God says in His Word. But I call on you not to suffer. I call on you to receive the gospel that Jesus has died in the place of sinners like you. Jesus has suffered the penalty for sins so that you can go free and enjoy blessings and not curses forever. He has died in the place of sinners like you, suffering the wrath of God against covenant breakers like you so that you could be forgiven of your sins, so that you can have God's love and mercy and grace and peace rest on you now and forever. So you who are outside of Christ, come to Christ and do it today. I call on you to plead with God to save you today. Now I know I've said a lot today about a lot. But what God means for you to believe about his covenant promises is not hard to understand. Here's what I want you to leave with pertaining to covenants. God has promised to save his people from our sins through his son. And he always keeps his promises. Let's pray. If you were not a merciful and gracious God, who makes saving promises and then demonstrates your entire ability to keep them, we would be of all men most to be pitied. But we worship and adore you that you promised to save us by the death and resurrection of your son. And that's what you've done. That's what you're doing. And that's what you will complete at the last day. Thank you, Father. Help us to respond to that with praise and thanksgiving, with joy and gratitude and hope. And I pray that there are those who entered this service outside of Christ who will leave having been placed in Christ. Do that saving work among us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.